0: Hello, hello! Welcome back to Big Fat 5, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum and a proud member of the Drum Click Podcast Network. Today's guest is returning champion Dan Bailey. Dan is certainly a friend of the podcast, and ever since we switched over to the new format, I really wanted to have him back on the show. He's a well oiled engineer, studio owner, and drummer, not necessarily in that order, currently drumming and MDing for Father John Misty, but Dan's also worked with Rainwolf, Pacific Air, First Aid Kit, One Republic, Christina Aguilera, and yada, yada, yada. Be sure to check out his previous episodes from the podcast from about 5,000 years ago. But I hope you enjoyed today's conversation about the top influences that shaped the very sought after playing style of Dan Bailey. Cheers. I'm here with Dan Bailey. Thanks for being on the show, dude.
1: Thanks for having me, man.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. I I introduced you right as you were drinking water, so I apologize. No worries, man. No worries. (laughs) And I will say, so besides the Save It For The Pod, you know, recurring segment that we have with Gunnar Olson, you are the most interviewed guest on this show. So, Oh, wow.
1: I'm moving up the ranks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you get a cookie or something. But uh, yeah, because early on in this venture, before I even knew what this was going to be. It was called the Big Fat Snare Drum Podcast. And I came to your old studio. Yeah. And we've recorded two episodes that, if you guys want, you should check them out. I think they came out awesome because you basically talked the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you you really knew what you were talking about. So the two episodes were five things to avoid on a session when you're playing drums, and then five things to avoid on a session when you're engineering drums. Both uh, things you know quite a bit about. Thanks for being back.
1: Thanks for having me, man.
0: Yeah. So I do want to talk about, I referenced your old studio. So you are in your new spot. If people are watching this video, they can see behind you. So can you, and it is a cool, unique little design that you created. So can you tell a little bit of the backstory of what the studio is and why you designed it the way you did?
1: Sure. So I'd had the, uh, the commercial studio spot in Orange County for geez, you know, three, four years, something like that. And at some point it, you know it's not the smartest idea to you know have a, a condo you pay a mortgage on and a commercial studio spot. You should combine those things if you get a chance uh that and like and you know there were too much like the lease was coming up, and not being in control of the building that you're investing in is tough. It's tough to throw money after that because it can go sideways real fast, so it just became time. it was like it's time for me and my wife to look for like a bigger place. The kids are outgrowing the little condo thing and uh and be able to you know build out a garage and have a spot with no commute and no uh, no additional overhead and all that stuff and uh, I, my buddy my buddy Matt Walker at, at Walker Acoustics designed and built and was the uh, I basically just turned him loose I was like here's how I need it to perform here's the kind of sounds I like you know and he's he's built a dozen or more rooms and I'd worked in a couple of them and they turned out great and loving this spot man it's it's so it's like a cheat code having a like a specifically built to record drum space because after years of like modifying rooms that weren't built for that purpose to get them a little kinder it's it's great because it teaches you all this stuff about how to like handle rough situations and then hopefully at some point you know if you're lucky like like me to be in a space that sound that kind of doesn't have any of those problems now it kind of makes me appreciate like a more minimal kind of engineering Mm -hmm. which is great because it's you know you go into a great sounding drum booth at any studio you kind of bring the fader up on any microphone placed most anywhere and it's going to sound like something yeah you know so like and that's you know up until recently that had been a specifically like if you didn't own a seven eight figure commercial studio that wasn't an experience you could have but now between people like matt you know contractors building rooms and the fact that you know you don't need a studio you don't need a console anymore so it's like now you know i I feel like i'm at a, a point where I, I feel like my engineering had caught up with my space, and now I feel like the space is now uh, uh, capable of way more than I am, and now I have to catch up again. But it's, it's been really fun to work in here, for sure.
0: Well, and aesthetically, you modeled it off another studio, right?
1: It's, it's uh, Matt is about the biggest dork for 60s, specifically re- L.A. recording studios, so like old cello, United, all that stuff, or, uh, you know, Ocean Way back in the day. And the color, the color scheme and the design of the traps and stuff is all... He wanted to try to mimic ocean way be as much as he could sure so that's why it's like the cream and black and yeah i mean that's my that's probably my favorite room i've ever recorded in so it was it's nice to have a little piece of that you know at least vibe wise you know it's it's love it
0: unfortunately i've never recorded in there so i uh i'll say yours is better until i get there (laughs) and i'll be like you know this is you know dan would have done this better in here Uh, or matt technically (laughs) but um (laughs) Sweet. Well, yeah, go on your Instagram. I mean, that's all your videos as of late. I mean, it's not super recent. You've been there for like, what, eight, nine months now?
1: Uh, I got the keys in October. Yeah. So, yeah, what's that? Yeah, geez, eight months. This whole thing is such a time warp. Dude, I know. Yeah. Who even knows? (laughs) Like, two years feels like two months ago and vice versa. But yeah, I think it's been like eight months or something like that.
0: Wow. Do you... Because I also have behind me, that's where my drums are, and then I live Mm -hmm. upstairs. Do you miss because I sometimes do that mental space you get in on the drive to the studio. And then more importantly, the drive back when you can have, you can bounce something and listen to it and blah, blah, blah.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, it's just a different approach, but yeah, abs- there is a, 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 something great about having the distance like mentally. It's like, okay, time to turn, turn work brain off going back home. Uh, but I mean the, for me, my, my commute was about 40, 45 minutes. And so, And having done that for years and years and years, you know, inevitably somebody needs you to reprint something because it didn't print correctly or, oh, I forgot to do an overdub on this. And so I'm driving in, I'm driving an hour and a half to do the one overdub and come home and like days like that way outweigh not having days like that anymore, way outweigh the, uh, the mental space. But I absolutely think there's something to having like a divide between your work and home life for sure. Because, I mean, I have an 11 and a 6-year-old 20 feet that way who at any point could come in and like, hey, I just fell off the couch and need to, you know, I need yeah, a band-aid yeah, yeah. now. It's like, <laughs> well, take two is gone now. Yeah, it's fine. But, uh, it, it, you know, there's definitely give and take. But, I, I mean, work-wise, you know, being around the kids, basically any time I'm not on the road is fantastic. That's the That's worth the whole thing for sure.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean you're getting two hours more with your kids every day. I mean that's yeah that's
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, price. Yeah, absolutely. One frees up f- freeze up my wife to like, yes, I'll look after the kids, you can go do your thing, you know. Yes, all exactly. Stuff. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh well I mean, speaking of getting hurt, what happened with your arm again?
1: <laughs> so basically like a year ago, right, like July fourth weekend, uh me and the, the my wife and our, our two kids were like at the park playing frisbee, you know, doing whatever. And I was running backwards away from my my son and like hit a tree root or something and fell back on my elbow and broke my arm, which luckily in, you know, in the rear view, it happened like right as I was moving my studio. So I didn't have a place to, you know, we weren't in the new place yet. It certainly wasn't started being built yet. So it was like, this is a four or five month recovery injury. And this just happened to be the four or five months. I'm not going to even have a place to play. So Even if I was feeling anxious, I kind of it kind of let me off the hook. Yeah, Um, but yeah, that was that was quite the never broken a bone before. But waited till I was thirty nine for whatever reason. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. uh, Yeah, but having you know did did my rehab I had to do and get the exercises back and all that and it's back you know ninety eight percent as good as it was. So can't complain. Yeah,
0: I mean you sound great online. So I can't you know I would never (laughs) know. Um, Yeah, I grew up in the Northwest and I was I was a I, I snowboarded every weekend and mm-hmm. I haven't snowboarded in probably 5 6 years because if I fall yep. it's it's very yep. rarely it's very rare that I don't have something for 3 or 4 months, you know. Yep. And so totally. I think I I had so many opportunities to go snowboarding in the last year when things were kind of opening up and I said no and I think I missed my chance I don't trust myself not to fall anymore.
1: I, yeah, I I mean after I did a tour in 2019 where it was us and Jason Isbell and we had like a basketball hoop and we were all playing every day and stuff. And then I got back and a buddy of mine like ruptured his Achilles just playing pickup. And I was like, man, I'm pushing 40. I think I'm retired because I know it's going to be an ACL or a, or a Achilles or an ankle or something that's going to be like going to affect the next 20 years of my ability to play the instrument. It's just. I think it's just time to retire from now. It's it's uh, the stationary bike and swimming. That's all I got.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and just getting out of bed in the morning. That's you know. Yeah. Um. But Bart Vanderzee, you've been on Drum History. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you talked to him about his Achilles. He was just pushing on his his longboard or something.
1: Well, and that's that's the th- I talked to him like recently thereafter. It was one of those like several acquaintances of mine got like similar type of injuries and we're all kind of similar age group and it was like oh it's... Yeah. I can read the writing on the wall. I get it. It's time to retire.
0: My God. Yeah, I still play tennis. That's my one guilty pleasure. I only mm-hmm. say guilty because I'm aware of that. that my knees and my Achilles. And I, I, I leave it all on the court, man. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. But the reason why I asked that, and I'm going to see if I can word this correctly, but it sounds crazy, but in, in a weird way, were you excited that you had to figure out how to build your chops in, in that left hand left arm back up because most adults that have been doing it for a while in certain ways were on autopilot with what like sure. m- maintenance but you had to really have a sense of your priorities so it, what, what was it fun to kind of dissect like what you really need to work on what's really making progress what's not
1: yeah it's what's funny is i you know so i didn't touch touch a stick for four or five months and i mean like i i, I had never really taken a break from play i've I've played drums for Four or five days a week, a couple hours a day, since I was like two or three years old. So like, I just I've never had space from it. So, a, you know, my initial thought was like, oh no, I can't do the thing I do on Earth for the <laughs> yeah, next yeah. several months. But then it was like, I've never not done that. So like, it's it's nice having a. It's so much of my, you know, identity is wrapped up in the fact that I do this kind of thing. It's I don't have hobbies. I do this. Well, I do this for fun. I do this for work. That's that's all I got. So like. There's, there's a certain amount of, like, appreciation I'll have. The same way I'm going to, I was, you know, like anybody, you've been on the road a bunch, the more, man, you get three, four shows left in a run, and those shows can't come fast enough. And, like, man, we've been out for 18 months. I get to go home for four months after tomorrow. Let's knock these out, get home. You know, like, everyone's in the last day of school mode. And I think I've really felt, like, the, the, the rebuke of, like, no, this can be taken from you. Like, this is something that no one, like, the, amount, the percentage of people that get to do what you and I do on the level we're lucky enough to get to do it is so small. And the amount of people who would like to do it is so vast that, like, I, would, I certainly was losing appreciation for how special my situation was. And so I think that, like, you know, that's all with the, the broken arm, but also the pandemic thing is, like, just having an appreciation for what it is we get to do. So, like, when I got to get back to playing drums, it was like, oh, yeah, this is fun again. I haven't gotten to do this. Yeah. You know, it's not... Because it's it's a job like anything else. It's it's a great job, but you're still punching a clock at some point, you know, like...
0: Did you realize that there were certain basic exercises that, that got your left hand back to where you wanted it to be quicker than you assumed? Like, just single stroke rolls was, like, weirdly the fastest way to get back.
1: You know what? I kind of just went back to... I think maybe it's because I have so much muscle memory ingrained that I just kind of went back to playing drums. Now I, there was there was a while before I felt comfortable playing like full-strength rim shots. We're talking like like I actually I passed a a session or two to buddies because I'm like like one of I got called for like a a tune that was a bunch of or a couple songs that were a bunch of like 160 BPM like ska songs mm-hmm. and I'm like I just can't play these the way they need to sound right now. I need to be in in better shape, you know. Yeah. Um for me, I just kind of went back to playing drums and just didn't, didn't hit hard, just like playing along with stuff. You know, like a, you know, friends started trickling tracks back in when I could get to them. and Luckily, most of the stuff I play isn't particularly aggressive, so I got back pretty quick. But there is a, a matter of like, not so much the technique, but I found like the touch in recording was the thing that took the longest. Because it's like, even when you're playing quiet, you have to play the same velocity for three minutes. Yeah. like it's it's that same thing and it's 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 consistent and as in the same place on the head you know all that stuff's valuable and that's the kind of thing it was like oh i don't really have a good feel for like how strong i am right now mm-hmm. like it'd be one of those like you could even look at the the sound file and the graph would be a little different <laughs> you know, some of the hits are 20% louder and yeah it, it was just a matter of getting back to just playing and not taking it too not taking it too hard if i would have had like a Luckily, they didn't have to even reset it. Like, it, it broke and went back and was fine. They just, like, uh, immobilized it for a little bit, and it was good. Um, had I maybe had a uh, more of a joint issue or had to have surgery where there's, like, specific range of motion exercises, they just, more or less, they were like, you're going to be good. Just don't try to pick up stuff for a long time. You know, like, anything, I think it was, like, anything above 10 pounds with one arm for, like, three months because they don't want pulling the gap apart and, you know, it's...
0: So right around the time you had Crazy. to haul all of your drums from place to place, you break your yes. arm. That was yeah. very, my, <laughs> very a couple, strategic. A couple,
1: a couple good buddies of mine and my wife and my dad were very beneficial in uh, <laughs> helping oh me out. Because yeah, it, it, was, it was one of those, like... I, I think the, the, I had the lease on the studio for another month or something like that, so I was like, okay, I've got a little bit of time. And it was one of those, like, hey, we'll let you out. It's actually beneficial to us if you can get out now and we'll like cut you back some, you know, like make it worth your time like all right. And then it was like, "Oh, now I have 3 days to get out of here." And you were you were over there. I have a fair amount of stuff. You were settled. So <laughs> it's a lot. Of, yeah, I'd been there for several years, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what is that space now? Can you can you say it's, or
1: It's another studio. I'm not aware of who's running it, but it's luckily I'm I mean it's been built as a studio. I'm glad it's still getting used for that purpose cuz It was a cool spot. I was, a, fr- I was afraid it was just going to get demolished and be like a you know a muffler shop or something which is totally, totally. fine but if yeah. you have a built studio building don't don't make a muffler shop out sure of
0: it. and there is some history <laughs> with that spot i know with uh some awesome rappers and stuff had previously been in there but um so i uh so today's actually the big fat six because you answered all my prompts and i appreciate that you were very thorough <laughs> and so the first one is a specific groove that completely changed the way you think about drums
1: yeah uh Man, I grew up super super conservative and doing almost specifically church music and it was very much like satanic panic. I was not allowed to listen to certain music. It so everything growing up was very very paint by by numbers, you know, like a, a Michael W. Smith ballad here, a DC Talk single there, right? Sure. Um
0: DC Talk I heard and that then, in a
1: while. Yeah. Hey, you know. And and as I got you know, as you transition out of that and kind of learn what you're... i was born in 1981, so you know I was 16 in '97, and so that's OK Computer era. That's you know like Third Eye Blind, the you know uh, you know Soundgarden's released great records, Pearl Jam, No Code. You know like there's there's great records coming out, Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and and so it's like you start to learn what you like and whatnot, and you know so I I found OK Computer, you know when it came out I was you know a senior in high school or something, and but. You know, like, everybody has pretty much has a moment with that record. It feels like it's one of those universal ones. But it's they're still just a guitar rock band. It's a weird guitar rock band, but drums-wise, it's the same as the bands. It's the same as Pablo Honey. It's it's the same as Weezer. It's the same as, you know, like, their mid-'90s alt-rock drums. Nothing going on. So, you know... uh, Having caught up with Radiohead at that point, then Kid A comes out and it's like, oh, they they like keyboards now. Great, you know, whatever. This is my 19-year-old brain or whatever. When Amnesiac came out right after, it felt like the band at Kid A had all, like Johnny, Colin, Ed, those, du- those dudes all figured out how to get weird on Kid A. Phil Selway filled out, figured out how to get weird on Amnesiac. Like, even on Kid A still has National Anthem. All those are, they're just drum songs, you know? And then you get to like, Obviously, Pyramid Song has some a really, really nice straight ahead, you know, like waltz jazz waltz pattern, you know, like Max Roach style. Like, it's really great. And then like the first time I heard Dollars and Cents, where the whole drum part is the eights on the ride and like a side stick on the downbeat. And then who knows, God, what else going on? Just kind of stream of consciousness. And it was the first time I, I remember like a record came out. And in real time, I was like, what on earth is this drum part? like this is this did they just like let a take before they were supposed to get going start you know like what is he doing there's no rhyme or reason nothing repeats you know it was just like for me it was like oh drums can be anything you want them to be there are no rules and it was one of those big like oh if if the drum part is a side stick on one and and ride and some intermittent toms and it makes the song feel like that it's the right choice you know like because i think you know, coming from the world I did and the, the music I grew up on, even the like mainstream music was Michael McDonald, Christopher Cross. You know, it was very it was very smooth. It was very safe. You know, you can listen with your grandma. No one's getting bummed out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was just such a. You know, whether is that I got into that first Bad Plus record around the same time, Dave King is doing some of that same stuff of like, this is a jazz band. Why is he playing like pots and pans and punk rock beats? Like, what's, like, oh, there are no rules. This, you can do anything you want, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, I, I think it was just, seem, I mean, the early 2000s, there was a lot of change going on in music regardless, especially you, you, that's when digital recording became, like, the thing. Uh, but that was one of those, in, in, in retrospect, Radiohead's one of those bands that feels like they've always been weird, and that is not the case. They've gotten, like, exponentially stranger every record. And I, t- I think to their benefit, that's, that's the reason we still care about them is they're willing to try stuff. It may not work, but they're willing to try. You know? And I don't know that there's a drummer that's improved more over the course of his career than Phil Selway. If you listen to Pablo Honey, he can like vaguely play drums. Like he, I mean, he's a kid kid. He's like out of high school. But it's, it sounds like a kid playing drums. And then you listen to Amnesiac and listen to Pyramid Song, and it's like, oh, this is like a, a skillful player now. And I think that that, and because I kind of grew up with those records happening at different, you know, and I've, every time they come out, I was at a different point in my life. And, you know, they kind of caught different ways with me and stuff. But I would th- say that, like, that in particular Amnesiac track is dollars and cents is, is one of the first times I ever remember being like, oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Well, let's just play a little bit of it. So that right there makes me really think that it really is a completely improv take because he does yes. that. Yes. It, it might be an overdub swell on on, on on the drum, but he keeps the snare drum going kind of into the second verse. And then he goes, oh, crap, we're on the crustic now. Yep. So, he, oh, here's the verse. Yep. Thanks, Tom, for the heads up, bud. You know, yeah, that's so sick. And I think you talked about it, too, or you mentioned it in your notes that sonically they, like, go in between either different takes or different mic placements throughout the song yeah they,
1: they make four or five different production changes on the drums throughout the course of the song which is I mean it's something they kind of starting with this record I mean it's on they do that on In Rainbows a ton they do it a ton on like you know uh, Moonshade Pool yeah it's like where you, you start to like the part doesn't even really change but now it's the room mics and so now it feels like the, the drums are 30 feet away and then it's to the close mics and they feel like they're hitting you in the face you know it's yeah, but, I
0: don't they do it on Reckoner. I remember that That's Reckoner a, song a lot that, they, that's, that yeah. may be
1: my my favorite uh time they do that for sure sure yeah there there's certainly i I'm absolutely with you in that that sounds like not only an improvised take but like an early improvised take like Phil vaguely knows the form because it's like, oh clearly it wasn't supposed to get that big yet, but it had a cool moment it's like sucks back down for the the you know Tom's vocal return and You know, happy accidents, man. That's the when all the best stuff happens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, Phil, Phil's Phil's the best, man, and he's so elusive. I've tried to get him on yours. I mean, it would be he's kind of my white whale, uh, oh yeah, in a big way. Cause, yeah, you said it best. Just (laughs) people rewind, and what I'm about to say is what Dan just said. So, let's. uh, (laughs) If you're good, we can move on to number two. Sure. All right. So it's. Your favorite fill, choice, or moment from a certain record? And I do have to put a disclaimer. I know how hard of a question this is for any drummer to answer. And I'm sure every guest that I've had on, if I were to bring them back on, their entire list would be different. I know mine is every month. So that being said, today, or at least this week, this is your favorite fill, choice, moment from a certain record.
1: This is actually, I, I think this one's. This is easily the easiest of the questions okay. for me because <laughs> I know, I know exactly if someone asked me like, walking down the street, I have an answer for that. And it's it's Phil Collins playing on the first track of the Tears for Fears uh, "Sowing the Seeds of Love" record. I think it's "Woman in Chains." Yes, or "Woman in Chains? And it's, I like I I love this record. And like we talked about, if I'm I'm like being forced to listen to Michael W. Smith growing up. This era of Tears for Fears isn't that different from gospel records. I mean, like, Alita Adams is on this record, who legitimately is a 90s gospel artist and, and is great. So, like, sonically, it wasn't going to scare my mom. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds big and lush and nice. And She's it's not like, going to knock you know. on the door. Yeah, yeah it's going to be fine. But I, I loved this record forever uh, before I knew it was Phil Collins that played drums on this track, because I love Phil Collins as well. Mm-hmm. And. And it was like, oh, and now in retrospect, I can't unhear it. It's the most Phil Collins Phil ever. I just assumed it was, that's what was gigantic in the world, and so people were copying it. I didn't know they actually had him play it. Uh, but, yeah, he, he it's one of those tunes that there aren't real drums for a while. I think there's some, like, side stick earlier. Like, dr- drums don't really make an entrance until, like, the bridge, at, you know, three minutes or four minutes into the tune. Um, And it was man it's such like a master class of just like the slow build and then to like the way he so it builds, goes into this big key octave or a whole step up key change and then they kind of unleash Phil into this like big grandiose final chorus and he starts playing all these crazy over, over the bar fills that are so simple but they almost sound like if you say you made tablature of these fills and just shifted everything like three eighth notes they just land where they shouldn't there, if you if you made the fill straight, if you time aligned them differently, they would be the most, like, dad fill ever. But because they happen in such a weird way, and he starts, like, ending his fills with these, like, upbeat hits, like, accents that no one else hits. So it's like, I'm making this, this is going to land on the and of two because I say it does, not because anybody else in the band does. And there's just such a, like, musicality, because clearly they're featuring him. You don't hire Phil Collins and not make the drum sound the the tune, right? Um, so they're, they're getting from Phil what they wanted, but there's just this, like the amount of space he leaves and the strangeness. I, I just remember being like, I was such a Vinnie Calyuta Dave Weckel shredder type, you know, earlier in the day, like, like most people are. And it was one of those, like, well, Vinnie, if this was a Sting song, Vinnie would have played like sixty fourth notes down the toms. It would have been incredible. But then you hear like in that same spot is like Phil's playing really weird. And I think at some point. I realized that like there are there are athletes on the instrument that are unassailable to me. I have I have a little bit in my bag, but there are dudes that have five times what I do. And it was one of those like, well, maybe I'll just start getting weird. Like maybe I'll, I'll like take the cue from Phil, who can also I mean Phil is a monster player, but what makes him cool is his choices. He's just he makes strange choices. Uh, I just I've always really dug it.
0: That right there sums up the reason I like certain drummers: uh, is choices. You know, there could be a yeah. word for this whole podcast; it's just choices over everything else. Um, totally. But yeah, so it's the song is only about six and a half minutes. So let's just play, starting at around five, and it, it takes a few bars, but then Phil just starts going crazy.
1: <laughs> Yeah. That feels that feels so good. Like you can cook a steak between those snare hits, man. <laughs> like there is nothing rushed going on. He is in total control, playing super confident. Mm-hmm. And it just it's just the like that song wants to take off and he is not letting it. Just like nope, like here's the the pulse, here's where we're going to land. And I love that after that big fill that goes over the bar line, he incorporates that offbeat snare hit that happens earlier in the tune. And that was another fly, like like flashbulb of like how do you make memorable drum performances and songs? It was like you quote yourself from earlier in the song. That's the that's the verse and like first chorus pattern that he's now doing at the biggest point of the song, and so now it feels like the song is you've a ari- you know you've arrived somewhere. It's not just happening for the sake of happening; it's really thought about. And it's so
0: fun that you that you brought that there's two sides of things that turn you on because what you just said about Phil is Phil, meaning Phil Selway is the exact opposite of what you appreciate about this thing that Phil Collins did. Um, and I, I I'm, I'm right with you on both of them because yeah, if you create motifs, it grounds the audience or the listener to be like, okay, they they know what they're doing. Now I can lose myself in the song in a way.
1: That whole record, I think Manu Kache is on a bunch of that record, too. That record is like a drum tour de force, man. It's it's pretty incredible. Tears for Fears is one of those
0: bands that I've never really listened to. Um, and this, it, it will change. It will change after well,
1: this. And it's it's one of those bands you're like, oh, I'm not that aware of them. And then you realize you know all of, like, 15 songs. You're like, oh, yeah, that's them, too. Right, uh, yeah. It's like Sticks
0: <laughs> for me. Yeah, I know a totally, lot of Styx totally. songs without knowing them. For-
1: yeah, Foreigner. Exactly. Oh, dude. <laughs> Foreigner is a classic one. <laughs>
0: Hey, y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drumco. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud. And it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye Uh, all right so number three a performance, and so just so everyone knows, you skipped this at first and then came back to it. So yeah, I uh, I let everyone know. Sorry, a performance <laughs> which you either played or witnessed that altered your musical course.
1: You know, uh, because of being so kind of locked down <laughs> for you know growing up, um, I didn't get to. I I didn't have an older sibling. I didn't have an older cousin. I didn't have a dad who was into, like, no offense, dad, didn't have a dad who's into cool music. He's right behind you. So, like, you. I didn't, yeah, he's, he's there somewhere. The, uh, I, I didn't have someone to pay, you know, you, you, the classic story is, you know, my older brother turned me on to Led Zeppelin 4, and now I like Led Zeppelin, you know, whatever. Yeah. I didn't have that until being, like, in college, and I had college friends do that for me. Um, so, I, obviously, I didn't go to any shows. I, I think that that, the question kind of, has a little bit of a pretext for me like changed your course like had i gone to you know see rage against the machine in 1998 and was like this is what i want to do you know that's what i was thinking and i just didn't have any of those experiences but talking again about music that could pass my my mom's ear test (laughs) um i had a family friend that was really into pink floyd and he let me borrow the pulse live you know vhs tape you know 94 95 something like that and that's the one with you know it's it's the The drummer in the band, I think Roger, the drummer in the band. Oh no, that's Queen. I think Queen. it's uh, Nick. Nick Mason. Nick Mason. Yeah. Nick Mason. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I should know that. Um, we can if you, you want to if you want to no, say no, no, that again. No, okay. no, 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 no. There's a lot of bands that I don't. I can't pull everybody. <laughs> All right, I'll leave it. In. Uh, the, <laughs> but the, it also has Simon Phillips doing like secondary drums. So a lot of like electronic percussion, a lot of like hand drums and stuff. It's really incredible, and. Kind of something I reference all the time for, like, when I'm building tracks, there's, like, a core drum track, and then there might be, like, a core overdub part that kind of fuses into one thing, like a motif that kind of fits the whole song. But it was one of those, like, you know, like any 16-year-old who hears Comfortably Numb, you know, just like, oh. And and David Gilmour's playing, his, his performance in particular on that tour is unreal. But it's, yeah, that was just feeling, you know, things that I had only associated with my religious upbringing, you know, like those feelings of being communal and everything. If you listen to Comfortably Numb and you don't feel that, you know, the same, if you listen to You 2 with or without you, you don't feel like, you know, that stuff. It's not spe- so much specific to your religious instance. It's specific to that's what happens when humanity attaches themselves to music like that. I, I legitimately listen to Pink Floyd Pulse, you know, live VHS, maybe 150 times at one point in my life, just on in the background all the time.
0: For me, it's similar. It wasn't a pivotal thing in my earlier life, but Roger Waters, The Wall, live in Berlin, uh, because I'm not really sure, like, the lineage of Pink Floyd, I'm sure everyone listening, I'm sure a lot of you guys do know, but there's Roger Waters still performing Pink Floyd stuff, and then there's David Gilmour and... In, on pulse it's Nick Mason the original drummer they're doing mm-hmm. Pink Floyd stuff so the Roger waters the wall, which is a Pink Floyd record is not yeah. Pink Floyd he has like <laughs> one of my favorites he has Levon Helm sings he has all these friends and it was this huge yeah. thing it's it's theatrical they and they build a wall and end up you end up like not seeing the band for like half the show it's kind of funny oh,
1: totally. oh I, I I remembered what it was uh, uh Peter Gabriel's Secret World Live was also a really big deal okay and that is man Manu Kache and Tony Levin specifically on digging in the dirt on on is just unreal good and okay. i think that was another that was another like talk about pulse obviously was a big production tour that secret world live tour and this is in 93 or 94 there's like a moving stage everyone's already on in ears and wireless mics there's like I, you know, a 40-foot tree that comes out of the city. It's an impressive tour. It would be unreal now, and to think that that happened in the early 90s is crazy. Wow. But that was another one, and specifically because the the Vinnie Calyuta chopsmeister and me watched that Manu Kache stuff and was like, oh, you can use that in a musical fashion. Not that Vinnie doesn't, of course, but Manu takes his own little brand of that, and there's there's Manuisms all over that thing but he's utilizing them in ways that support what's going on and it's like oh you can have all that that stuff in your playing you just have to figure out you, how to pick your spots you know
0: mm-hmm. i had a Manukache yamaha snare drum that got stolen from me on tour uh. and it was the saddest thing because it was a little 13 inch um i think it's his signature and uh, mm-hmm. snare drum and it was it sounded so good uh you could make it do whatever you want it to do um so yeah whenever i hear that name i always think of that his little signature <laughs> and his drum and it bums me out so thanks dan um <laughs> but yeah that's that's great i was gonna i mean do you want to play a little clip i do have the pulse live set up what what's uh what's,
1: i mean like the guitar solo section of comfortably numb is crazy sure. good yep i agree you know, I mean, that's and, and nick's playing is great too
0: Dude, if that doesn't pump you up, I don't you need to get your, your, your heart checked.
1: <laughs> I I think we're learning that I like songs that aren't in a hurry. Yeah. <laughs> like particularly that seems to be what the, the 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 thread that connects all my favorite drum performances. It's just the snare drums just a, just a little bit too late.
0: Well, I mean, I think uh, I know later on in your choices that is definitely the case. All right, so this is uh, number, number three, your favorite drummer and how their overall body of work has affected you. And again, I know one of the toughest questions to ask, yeah. but here we go.
1: This, this, yeah, this is the hard one because I, I don't know that I have, like even, you know, when I try to think about five or 10, it's like it, there's really kind of 20 or 25 that are all kind of yep. equal, you know. Um, but for me, I would say the one that I... Utilize the most. I'm a, I'm a giant Brian Blade fan, but not so much. Honestly, not really even as playing because I don't I don't play in those the circumstances he does. So I don't I don't get to glean any of that stuff, any of his stuff, into my my thing that often. Um, but the just amount of clearly world class ears of a of a, a dude that's just completely aware of what's going on and. Playing really stream of consciousness, not in his own head. Clearly, there's no self, like in a a bad way, there's no anxiety, there's no self examination while he's playing. He is open and he is just playing. He's reacting to what's going on around him. And that's, you know, whether it's on, you know, like Dylan Time Out of Mind or obviously all the Lanois uh, solo records he's played on or his own, you know, like straight ahead stuff, there's just a, there's never one more note than there needs to be ever. So there's like an economy of the playing, and that's not to say he doesn't play busy sometimes, but he's never picked an unmusical spot in his life. You know, it's like when it's time to when it's time to throw the notes, it's always in service to what's going on in the bigger picture. Um Yeah, I, I just think that there's such a like a humility to his playing that I think is is really that you know, being a, a young hotshot kid at one point in my life has been really beneficial to try to pick some of that as like when you're as good as he is, you don't have to tell people you're as good as he is. And that should be everybody's. <laughs> it's like just work on your craft and let the stuff take care of itself, you know. Yeah, let them brag. And, yeah. Yeah. And I just I just think there's you know, there's there's just a thing he brings to whatever project he's in and it's not even specific to the playing. It's just like you know you're going to have a team player that's going to make musical decisions that's going to help whatever artist be the best version of themselves. And that's something I'm always trying to you know not so much again the playing but like that approach you know it's like if if i can be in service to the situation that's going to make for a better outcome are
0: you getting better at having your first take be what you want it to be and what i mean by that is i and i've said this on the podcast before that I, I, my i still after all the times i'm like going to play less going to blah 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 i'll do my first pass and i'll listen back and it's just like still 80% too busy are you getting sure. better at kind of channeling that Brian Blade and your first pass being like, everything I made is musical, I didn't overplay. Not that I love every part, but, sure. you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the first, my first pass on a tune, I'm always just trying to like get through it. Because uh, it's obviously often in the sound-checking stage. If I'm engineering, I'm getting sounds at the same time. Uh, if I'm just on a session and I'm playing, I'm just trying to... You know, at some point... Uh, I, I read this Nathan East interview years ago you know famous bass player played on everything 80s 90s 2000s um and somebody was asking him how he's like so fast in the studio and he's going like there's there's only 12 notes and i've heard them all in every order so many times that you just get like a sixth sense for what you're trying to get through and i i find some of that is like i think people get too worried about the specifics of what they're actually playing than what like the drums are trying to accomplish in the song you know it's like it's not about when you know say a I've had a drummer or two that are going to tour a record that I played on and they'll ask me how I'm playing a certain part. And it's like, well, just, just find a way that makes that makes the thing that my part is achieving, make that happen the way you're going to do it. Like unless the artist wants you to play it verbatim, but it's not so much. I think we just get so worried about like the part so that our first take is like, well, I don't have my part yet. It's like, just get to the end of the song like just fight your way through it you're gonna there's gonna be happy accidents 99 percent of the time it's gonna be like well i clearly didn't know the song (laughs) and like the second pass is gonna be better now that i know it stops right there there's a hold. there's an extra bar before the chorus all that stuff
0: or you'll be phil selway and they'll release it and 25 years later we talked about on a drum podcast Yeah,
1: and we'll be (laughs) be talking about how smart it is yeah uh yeah so I, i i don't worry so much about especially early takes like finding a part as much as like do the drums one sound good and then are they achieving what I want them to, you know, like, are they driving the song? Are they lifting the song? Are they, like, acting as, like, a, a foundation for the song? You know, like, what did we need the song, the drums in the song to do? Are they doing that or not? It's really not about the, like, so much the part most times.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's why you're, uh, you know, asked to do what you do. <laughs> so to bring it back to Brian Blade, uh, you said Daniel Lenoir?
1: Yeah, the, the, uh, the re- first record I got really into another record that like you know came out as i was starting to get into music in real time is that shine record and the second half of that record has a bunch of gems but power of one in particular is you can just tell it's it's three people playing music and they hit record and like brian might know the song but like it doesn't really matter because he's playing so you know and it's a it's a 16 bar a section b section tune it's a jam but the the way he's, like, lifting the B section and, like, cutting back for the A section and, like, doing a one drop to, like, because he heard Blanois play a guitar thing. You know, it's like, there's no, he, he's, you know, flying blind and making all these incredible musical choices at the same time. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, let's just check it out. to your ecstasy images of a viral out here you coming in with your mission bell don't sit waiting for the thing to come again I'll let feel the power of the one don't sin. waiting for The drop drop into that second verse, because that's the kind of thing you can tell, like the Phil Selway track, you can tell, like, oh, we're at the verse. Like, he's clearly, like, not finding a part until beat three of the second bar or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, we're here now. But it's so, it's just so dang musical, it doesn't, (laughs) he's clearly just, like, following a dude's, like, body language he can see. Sure. Like, and I think that's really cool, you know.
0: Yeah, it's like why does everyone have to go to the next part at the same time? It's like, yeah. "Hey man, I'm going to finish my beer. You go ahead. I'll meet <laughs> you at the next bar." You know, it's like it's it's fun. Yeah, that's and I hadn't heard that with headphones till just now. Oh. Um so if you guys are listening to this, listen to that part on headphones or listen to the song on headphones. There's really is a lot of cool panning going on and uh stereo imaging. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, and I mean that's that's a big uh I mean he, they do that a bunch on that Dylan record Time Out of Mind and they do it on I think the first track on Shine where they do like hard-panned two-take drums and that's there's so much cool you know you're you're basically playing with your own drum pass from you know a, a previous take and so there's so much cool interplay even though they're playing the same pattern your your grace notes are never exactly going to be the same you, you know he's obviously picking his spots to add an extra kick on the one side to you know give you a little left right stereo image and stuff but yeah, that's such a, the that drums are a big, pretty stereo image, you know, as wide as the whole mix thing is. So recent, yeah. Like all our favorite records, drums are mono and they're in the corner. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like it's Shut not until the eighties, yeah, yeah, it's not until the eighties that that things are, you know, thanks Phil Collins, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly <laughs> for the good and bad, making giant hi-fi drums in the middle of the mix, the the whole thing, you know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, All right. So number, let's see, would this be number five? This actually is number five. doesn't matter what number it is. Next one, a record that just hit you at the right time of your life and represents a big piece of your artistry.
1: Man, I found Jeff Buckley, Grace, you know, like right. I would have been, I think I found it like right as he passed away. So in the late 90s, um one of those like you hear of a of an artist passing and then you you know I was 18 or 17 or whatever and I went back and listened to the EPs and and Grace like not only, you know, my career has been built around playing for singer-songwriters so that's like a foundational text for the whole thing. That's one of the greatest songwriter records ever made. Um and certainly Jeff's, you know, like uniform talent. Like no one no one sounds like that dude. I that 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 voice comes out of a person is still wild to me, you know. Um but Matt Johnson's playing on that record is so dang good. And that would have been like right as I was going into like community college. And so I was playing like big band a little bit and playing in a jazz combo. But then I had like a rock band with friends. And we jam or whatever. And those, again, because I'm very conservative and I tend you know tend to be distancing myself from a conservative mindset. There were very big delineations in types of music. There was like, this is jazz playing this is rock playing the 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 two i mean obviously you know fusion's been happening since the late 60s but in my head it was like no these are different things like combo jazz playing is not big band jazz playing and that's not singer songwriter rock playing and then you hear like the the first track you know you hear mojo pin and he's playing like a jazz waltz thing and it's just like what on earth is this drum part and then it goes into a big two and four drum part and it comes back to the the chill you know thing and And then, you know, a track like Dream Brother, where he's doing like a crazy hi-hat ostinato thing and playing, you know, basically kind of Indian-influenced drum set parts, you know, like that kind of, you know, school of thought. And was hearing that on, you know, on the same record as like a Last Goodbye, which could be like a Matchbox 20 song, you know, if it was much, you know. But so it's like hearing that kind of weird playing on the same record as like traditional rock songs was like, oh, they're another moment of like oh, music is what you make of it. There are none of these. Like when people worried about, I don't know if this song fits with these other songs on a record. It's like, are they your 10 best songs? Just put out your 10 best songs, you know, like because you certainly wouldn't put Dream Brother and, you know, like Lover You Shouldn't Come, you know, you should have come over on the same record otherwise. there It's a 6-8 ballad and like a percussion-y thing. It's, you know, diminished scale and all that. Yeah, I, I've I've just always loved Matt's playing, and it's again just super musical. Is doing something interesting when he could be doing something boring, and, yeah. and he chooses to to bring something interesting to it. Yeah, I've, I always just, I mean, I'm I'm not alone in really liking that record, but I've thought that like, particularly the drums don't get the credit they need to to be getting on that record. And and isn't it wild how being a like Matt being a part of that record. You know, I, I've been lucky enough to run into Matt a couple times when he was on tour of St. Vincent and we, you know, hung out backstage for two seconds and I, I've never got to like really hit him with the Jeff questions. So I'm sure he gets that a lot, but but been trying to be cool about it. But there's, it's so weird because it's so easy to go, that's Matt Johnson who played on that record that was really important to me. And it's just, that's that's Matt. It's a dude, you know, like it's a guy. It's a t- super talented guy, but it's it's so funny how music is one of those things, you know, if you saw... An actor you really appreciate it. It'd be the same thing. It's that there's, it's that starstruckness of appreciation, not love. Like this person's famous, and I want the clout of I want a photo with this dude. It's just like Matt, you know. Like I really love that record, man. <laughs> You're playing on, that's really incredible, and I likely don't. If that record was not in the the recipe of how I approach drums, I don't know that I'd be a professional player. Because I think it really it really opened up to like, oh, I can use all this other stuff. These are all tools, you know, towards an end. There's no there's no rules for any of this stuff. I mean,
0: next time you see him, you should definitely tell him that. That's I, huge.
1: <laughs> I yeah, it's it's been he, he's a he's a really great dude. I haven't got to talk to him much, but at one of these times we'll be at like a you know airport gate at three in the morning or something. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll bug him
0: well let me play a song uh dream Brother. sorry yeah. and uh i think i had it starting about about two two minutes in because that's when he starts doing the more tom stuff and then he does sure. he does go to that ostinato that you referenced and it's yeah i was on my run this morning and i was like i don't think he has enough hands to do this in one take but maybe it is in one take i have no idea it sounds so crazy
1: i the i i mean it's it's one of those things where I understand how to play it, but I cannot play it. It's, sure. just, it's just above my ability to separate my limbs from each other. But it's it's frustrating because even as a kid, I was so close to getting it, and I never quite did. <laughs> yeah. man and i love how andy wallace 1990s those drums are oh yeah totally I, those, like those like late 90s new york city drums are so cool man i love those but what is what is that drum part like yeah i mean it's it's and it's great because clearly i mean like guitars are just playing whole you know big whole note changes so like drums are the thing happening Bass is, is just pedaling the one note so it's like one of those times, drums have to take up the space because if they don't, where's the propulsion for the song? Like that middle section doesn't make sense if the drums don't get you to the next big section, you know. And I, I just there's so much. He's so good at taking up those spaces. I mean, that's the story of Mojo Pin too. Is like, he he makes a meal of the spaces where they need him to carry the song, and it's it's really cool.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, and the
0: cool thing about that is kind of where I faded it in. If you didn't know the pulse of the song. You're, I mean, you might have be like, well, if, if that it's a hi-hat, is that the pulse or is he doing some weird? Because obviously Matt yeah. is known for kind of being like, his hi-hat's in fifteen eight, and then is, you know, doing <laughs> something else. Uh, at least being across the hallway from him, that's what he practices. So, um, yeah, it's cool. It's, you know, you don't know where the one is and it's, it's, he's insane. He's insane.
1: Yeah. Unreal. Uh,
0: all right. So next one. And this is the last one. The sound of a particular record that helped mold your tuning style.
1: So Beck, Sea Change was a really big deal for me because, you know, I liked, I, I had a, a, like an immediate connection to Beastie Boys when I heard them first as a kid. As, you know, it's like, it's some angsty, great teenager music, right? Uh, and, and I, you know, if you grew up in the mid nineties, that's a really great angsty teenager music era to grow up in. Um, and so I, you know, I was, I was listening to, you know, a bunch of Beastie Boys and then this dude Beck shows up doing like like hobo hip-hop you know like i don't even know what you would call those like mellow gold is such a strange record and then like into like mutations is so weird odelay is so weird and then but they're all like specifically like beck weird samples and these like kind of jam songs you know like the beck thing which is incredible and one of my favorite artists but then you get you know 2002 or or whenever sea change came out and it's like oh this is like a serious adult songwriter record that I don't know that anybody, I certainly didn't wasn't aware he had it in him, you know, as being 20 or when that record came out or whatever. But another one of the, kind of the entire opposite of the rest of the things we've talked about, which is how you're using drum, like attention on the drums to, you know, highlight your, your part or whatnot. Or like the, the things that, you know, that Phil Collins is doing to help the song along that are very drum centric or whatnot. Sea Change has almost none of that. See so is like most of the songs. If they have drums, it's like kick and snare, and there might be like a shaker, with like no deviation for six minutes. And there's something about, and obviously you know I, I you know James Gadson plays on a couple of them, which are unreal. But he, and he's holding down the sixteenth note, James Gadson thing the whole tune. Doing his Feels thing. Feels amazing. Yeah. Feels great. And the Joey Waronker tracks are just the most like effective use of minimalism. They make every song sound so good. And the record is, is, like, instrumentationally, it's so acoustic guitar-based that, like, acoustic guitar is the hi-hat on this record. Like, that's, that's where it's mixed. It's right up front. Um, and really, the, like, rhythm guitars are playing drums on this record, and drums are kind of along for the ride just to support. And between the sounds and how sparse the parts are, I had never really thought about drum sounds that dead and that, like, present before. You know, is coming out of the 90s, everything's Soundgarden. It's big room mics, you know, like it's even in the early 2000s, like, you know, even like a, a you know, a Limp Biscuit or a Linkin Park or something that's big room compressed, you know, big expensive sounding rock drums. And so to hear, you know, drums recorded in a vocal booth that are playing like, I mean, some of those tunes, the drums may have like 162 hits in the entire song. Or You know, it's, they're so sparse that there's four or five drum notes of, a measure. And so there's just all this space for the song. There's this space for, like, the, the pace of the tune. The songs tend to be pretty wordy, so there's all this extra space for that. Like, there's, there's just something coming from, like, a music school, I want to use all these bag-of-tricks things, to then hearing this record that's so calm and so, like, restrained and cut back. To where like oh this is all the drums have to do on this song yeah they could do more but why would you do that it's like look how pretty they sound why would you, why would you like mess them up by playing too many notes you know exactly I've I've always really loved that record uh, and I mean it's that'll be I mean I'll, I'll pass away one day with that being one of the ten best sounding records I've ever heard the mix on it the orchestra arrangements even Beck's like vocal performance is really special in a way that you know he doesn't tend to be like it's it's very like intimate like i really really like that record for sure
0: great well let's actually play the song already dead off sea change from 2002
1: treasures you could hold How do you fight the urge to hit a crash cymbal on that downbeat, that chorus? There's no fill, there's no deviation, he didn't change his dynamic level, nothing changed. Just breezed through it like it didn't even happen, and it makes the song so kind of unsettling. It's... it's, the performance is, is... it's just one of those first times I remember thinking like, oh, that's all the drums have to do. Like, if drums accomplish that, they're making that song feel incredible, they're not stepping on anything. They're giving a really good like texture to the tr- the whole you know the total track. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's so it's so hard it's so hard and we I talked about this with Frankie Siragusa last week on kind of we were dissecting Ringo, on sometimes just a hi hat on the two and four, but you have to grapple with. But they brought me in here, or I'm in this band to think of a part. So you, yeah. But it's 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 really hard to not try and think of something unique, not even like impress other drummers, but think of something unique to
1: to entertain yourself. That's that's that can be the you know that can be the problem but I think that there's there's like a man there there's a place you can get to uh the couple of times I've been lucky enough to to like record a live record with a live band and we have ballads like that and there's like you know you you reference a click at the top and then you count it off and just go and there's something about just you know like losing yourself in the in the the space between the 2 and 4 and it's one of those like you know you've ever been driving home and you like come to and you've driven 15 miles and you're just listening to music you're not really paying attention to what's going on
0: <laughs> yeah unfortunately that, many like, times yes
1: <laughs> yeah without a dangerous being tired way but you know you're just like in your own thoughts or whatever mm-hmm. um wh- i find the best man when you can find that place in a recording situation where it's just like this I always try to think of, like, if I was hearing this song completed, what are the drums doing? Like, if I was listening to an already finished song. And it's one of those, like, just having the... One, the, like, you know, being able to look at yourself and go, like, Hey, I don't need to impress anybody with this track. Like, this is not about me. This is about the situation. And just... I thought, Man, the older I get, the more that's what I'm chasing is that vibe of, like, this is perfect. I'm using the proper amount of notes... I'm being as efficient as I can. The stuff sounds as good as I can make it. There's just the things that excite me now is like the restraint over the Mm. the busyness, you know. Which is fucking hard. (laughs) It's really hard. It's it it. You have to reverse wire your. I think it's everyone seems to go through this period, especially early in we're playing, especially if we pick it up in junior high, high school, where the whole game is we got to get as good as we can get, as fast as as loud as good like as good a drummer, quote unquote. And then the rest of that is, like, unlearning that stuff. And just, like, because that stuff will lead you to a place where you're so fixated on the drums themselves that you're not listening to anything else going around and you're probably not much fun to play with. You know, there's (laughs) drummers, the drummers that were, like, if you go to see any gig that, say, Jay Bellarose is on, right? Like, it's so dang musical and half the time you're going, what is he even playing? Like, I don't even know what he's doing, but whatever it is is so freaking cool. That it's just and it's making the situation so pleasant for the other musicians to be around you know it's that's that's why that dude's phone rings you know it's 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 not if it was about the best players, it would be a whole different group of people doing this that's for sure yeah, yeah it would not be called it's <laughs> not the best players <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not
0: <laughs> um, well, Dan, that is your top I believe six do you want to uh I, I know you've been, uh, you've done, and you've produced and released Bailey Method. Are you working yeah, on more yeah. stuff? I know there's one, one through three out right now.
1: Yeah, I've I've got a couple, uh, you know, like recording and tuning masterclass things that uh, I've been doing it for a couple years, and it's been really fun to to interact with people in, in that kind of because I've never taught before four or five years ago, uh, and I didn't feel like there was a really wealth of good like honest recording information from people to kind of do it all the time. Um, and so, you know, first class, I worked on tuning a bunch. Second is getting some, like, basic sounds that'll send you some different directions. The third, I just, like, open up a session and you follow me do a remote session. You know, like, watch me from, like, talking about what I'm going to play to percussion overdubs and stuff. And I'm, I'm coming out with a fourth one here, uh, July 16th. And it is based, like, specifically around getting and engineering dead drum sounds. Because I feel like a lot of people, like know how to make you know if I, I look around instagram and most people's dead sounds sound good it's just that maybe we don't know what to do with them engineering wise once we get them we know how to like make the drums different but then don't know how to like best utilize that with the mics so kind of going through my approach to how i get because i would say you know 70 or 80 percent of what i'm doing is some kind of dead muffled sea change tame Paula type thing most times you know so like That's what's on top 40. So, that's something we all got to learn how to do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, thanks for being
0: on the show, man. And I'll talk to you soon, dude. Talk to you later. All right. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger. And hopefully, I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, Anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 audio editor. It's amazing. So go check that out
1: at isotope.com.
0: Bye.